Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, legal scholar Richard Epstein discusses the growth of government in the 20th century. Cato's Michael Tanner assesses the State of the Union. Author Bert Folsom discusses FDR's war policies. Economist Richard Vetter takes higher ed to task. And economist John Cochran discusses regulation and the financial crisis. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Members of Congress seem to have been taken aback a little bit at the reaction to the Stop Online Piracy Act. Members of Congress, of course, will joke about how little they actually know about tech policy while writing these big bills that uh, could have a very profound effect on uh, how we interact with each other both within the United States and around the world. and uh, But that's not the end of the story, of course. I'm joined here by Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Baron Soka, president of Tech Freedom, a free market tech policy think tank. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. So uh, just to get started here, Julian, Baron, uh, whoever wants to start, tell us about SOPA. I mean, we would have included this discussion earlier on Cato Audio, but the reaction was so quick and uh, the lawmakers backed down so rapidly from what was in there, they were obviously very much taken by surprise. It was an incredible reaction. We saw I mean, literally millions of people writing and petitioning Congress, hundreds of thousands people, of people jamming the switchboards on Capitol Hill. And if you had told people even a year ago that you would see that kind of mass popular reaction on a copyright bill, I think you would have been greeted with with incredulous stares and justifiably for really decades, copyright policy has been something made like a lot of technical policy areas in DACR by the industries most directly affected, the movie and music and software industry trade associations. And one of the big reasons I think there wasn't a lot of public engagement on those issues is that until fairly recently, if you did not own a CD pressing plant or a printing press or maybe a radio station, copyright policy didn't directly affect you very much beyond maybe meaning you know, you could get a public domain, slightly cheaper copy of a book a year or two earlier. And the internet now is so integrated into people's lives, platforms for user-generated content like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter are such an important part of people's everyday lives that it's become clear because digital technology is fundamentally all technology for making and transmitting copies that even very well-intentioned copyright legislation designed to regulate copying, limit copying, actually does affect ordinary people. And there was a gradual, I think, realization that something that works so broadly to shut down, as SOPA proposed to, entire sites, basically, without any kind of adversarial proceeding on these accusations of of facilitating copyright infringement, and in particular language suggesting that not doing enough to police your site, avoiding taking steps to confirm that people were using your site for copyright infringement could also be grounds for being shut down. And you started seeing entrepreneurs getting very worried, First Amendment civil libertarian folks getting very worried, venture capitalists getting very worried, and then ordinary internet users ultimately. And I think a lot of what sparked the backlash was looking at the hearings we saw on the Hill where, as you say, 
you had legislators joking about how little they understood, for example, some very serious cybersecurity questions that had been raised about how various security initiatives would be affected by a kind of mandate to implement these technical measures that the people legislating them didn't understand. There was a widespread sense that the hearings around this had been stacked, that it was just a handful of industry supporters of this bill, that there was not a broad participation by the ordinary users who would be affected, by the entrepreneurs who would be affected, by the engineers who actually understood what it meant to implement uh, these kind of blocks. And what we've seen growing out of that, interestingly, is a situation now where in the streets of Europe, we're seeing in countries like Poland and Bulgaria and Germany, again, thousands of upon thousands of people marching in the streets to protest a copyright treaty called ACTA, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement. And those, again, seem to me at least to have less to do with the specific provisions of this fairly vague treaty, you know, partly to do with the fact that, again, this is something that's very clearly being pushed by the U.S., sort of exporting our very protective copyright restrictions, but also that people are tired of seeing policy that they now understand affects them made in a non-transparent way, made, I mean, in this case, literally secretly during the entire process, the treaty was actually being negotiated with so little participation by so many relevant stakeholders. Baron? I want to start here by saying I think that there is a valid interest here. The problem is real of copyright infringement becoming a serious concern. And it certainly isn't a good thing that websites exist out there that profit from the wholesale pirating of copyrighted works that that I think clearly anybody who accepts the constitutional system that we have for copyright would say that we need to do something about that. The problem is that that debate went beyond the intention, that goal, and went straight to fairly draconian measures with, as Julian is saying, very little understanding for how they would actually work. So my two concerns in that process were, one, first and foremost, that that very process that Julian describes, I think, undermines the moral foundations for the respect for the copyright system. And ultimately, that is the most important basis by which we protect copyrighted works. It is the broad recognition that there's a legitimate moral purpose to not stealing. And that, that I think, has suffered in this entire debate. The second thing that I've been appalled by, just as Julian has been, has been the failure of process here. And just as you open this discussion, and as uh, Julian remarked, I think uh, the words of Hayek really ring true here, where he said that it was the curious task of economics, and indeed it is our mission at Tech Freedom more generally, to demonstrate to men, he said, how little they understand about what they imagine they can design. And he said that to refer to mismanagement of the economy. But it's really true for how government intervenes more generally throughout the Internet. And in a nutshell, I think what you see here is people in Congress don't understand the technologies. They don't understand the unintended consequences of their actions. And they act as if their good intentions are enough. And then all they need to do when someone raises a concern about implementation is pound their fists on the table and say, but we have to stop rogue websites or we have to protect in other contexts the children, or we have to do something about cybersecurity. And in every one of those cases, it's an end to the conversation. It prevents there from being a more informed conversation with real experts. And I would just add in particular that in SOPA, there was a single hearing at which there was a single witness who was critical of SOPA. And that person was not only not an engineer or a technical expert, but was a Google lawyer, which frankly was a pretty transparent ploy 
on the part of the House Judiciary Chairman um, Lamar Smith to make this seem as if it was really only Google that was opposed to these bills, which has been the theme you've heard throughout. And on the issue of security, Julian, I know you and I have talked about this, is the the fact that you know the contents, the technical contents of SOPA and PIPA actually threatened to make the internet less secure and perhaps create some problems in terms of people's security with their own data, their own hardware as well. That's right. Ultimately, actually, the government's own top cybersecurity experts and computer scientists weighed in saying that they believed that this uh, legislation would cause problems. The issue here was that the bill proposed using the domain name system, the Internet's phone book, uh, as a way of trying to block people from accessing sites that they had decided were hubs of Internet piracy. And the problem with this was that there has been an attempt ratcheted up really over the last couple of years to try and plug a pretty big hole in the Internet's architecture that allows or could allow malicious hackers to worm their way into your Internet provider's phone book, so to speak, and so that when you typed in, you know, bankofamerica.com, it would lie essentially to those computers and tell them that the hacker's own computer was Bank of America and would you please enter all your account information. And that the way to prevent this was to implement a system that's, again, still sort of in the works, still being deployed, that would authenticate all the entries in the phone book with encryption, basically. Use cryptographic signatures to ensure that the correct information was being presented. And that if you made it mandatory that internet providers not provide accurate information because they were not actually supposed to tell you where to find, you know, copyrightinfringement.com when you went looking for it, that would actually break compatibility with something that hadn't even been deployed yet, but really needed to be deployed pretty badly, still needs to be deployed pretty badly. And that various methods of trying to avoid that problem had their own sets of problems. And the issue, again, was that the DNS experts, the people who designed this, you know, frankly, very technical and even among network engineers, not super well understood system, weren't really being listened to, weren't at the table. And the people writing the legislation often would think they had fixed a problem and not understand that they hadn't because they still, again, weren't talking to the engineers involved in the process. It was as though they thought whatever rule they put in place, somehow people would just figure out how to work around it. It's worth noting that this provision, this domain name system rerouting provision, if you will, was removed at the last minute in a manager's amendment. But there, even it's worth noting that there are still concerns about other provisions of the bill and that the the fact that it's okay to rewrite a bill dramatically literally days before a markup and then expect that you've done your work and that the bill can can be passed on out of committee to the floor really is an insult to the democratic process. So this to me is just to feed into the larger conversation that started It's been going on for a long time. It really started in particular when the Republicans took the House and Speaker Boehner promised that, for instance, there would be 36 hours, excuse me, I think it was 72 hours, three days, at least to read a bill. And the reality is even that is just not enough time. You cannot rewrite a bill like that with a substitution of one bill for another, which is what and the Senate is called a manager's amendment, and expect that that then gives the other members of the committee and technical experts a chance to weigh in and produce a a bill that's really solid. So this is really about committees doing their work, their homework, and producing a solid legislative record and justifying regulation of the internet. Now, hot on the heels of SOPA and PIPA, 
there was concerns raised about ACTA. Some people were describing it as the international version of SOPA. And Julian, is that a fair statement? I I don't think that was entirely accurate. I think there have been a lot of attempts to tie other internet issues into SOPA because of the incredible popular reaction to that. You know, ACTA is a a different animal. From a U.S. perspective, it wouldn't really do much to affect U.S. law. It would tend to sort of export perhaps some of our copyright policy around the world. But it did not contain, at least in the ultimate version, anything very close to the kind of draconian blocking provisions that were included in SOPA and its Senate counterpart, Protect IP. I think, again, the part of the objection here is to the sense that people don't have a stake or any real say in how these agreements are hammered out. And I think what you saw, what Barron was talking about here, this belief that you could respond to criticism by very quickly, you know, essentially doing a redraft of a 70-page bill and then saying, okay, we fixed everything, now we're going to vote in two days, was something that worked to an extent if your policy model was we're going to have a bunch of, of... big industries that are stakeholders. So if, you know, after these bills basically were made toxic by the popular backlash, you know, we heard the head of the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, saying, okay, okay, we understand. Let's meet up around a table at the White House with Silicon Valley representatives, with folks from Google and folks from the big tech companies. You know, and if that's your model, if you're going to have a bunch of lawyers sitting around a table deciding whether legislation is acceptable then you can make dramatic changes and all the experts sort of look at it and you can get pretty quick consensus. When you hit a point where people, ordinary internet users, feel they have enough of a stake, they expect to be consulted, that they expect to have an opportunity to try and understand major policy changes. And they don't necessarily trust Google or Hollywood or any particular company or industry to appropriately act as a surrogate for their interests, that is no longer an appropriate model. And I think that's what the protests we're seeing in Europe are centrally about, the feeling that something is being imposed on people that they are not even allowed to understand before it goes into effect. Baron? I agree with that, but I do want to add that it's not just that there is the mass protest to people who want to be involved and then the small coterie of people who have traditionally been involved in the writing of these bills. What we're really seeing is that technology has enabled a paradigm shift in how legislation is drafted. And I want to come back again to Hayek because I think if you understand Hayek's concept of the use of knowledge in society, you can see this paradigm shift very clearly. So in the past, if you were a member of Congress, you have a very small staff of people who don't understand the particular aspects of what they're dealing with. That problem grows much, much larger as you start dealing with complicated technical issues. And so it's really only by necessity that you need to turn inevitably to industry people because they're the ones who have what Hayek calls local knowledge about how the industry works, about how technology works, and and how a bill would actually need to be implemented. So it's understandable that they would have done that in the past. The paradigm shift here is, is really twofold. One, those knowledge problems are becoming more severe because we're talking more and more about very complicated unintended consequences. So causality is more indeterminate. And second, we have now the opportunity to bring in a larger number of players who actually have uh, dispersed local knowledge, dispersed expertise about an issue. And, And to make this very concrete, you have only to look at the website keeptheweboppen.com 
which was set up by Chairman Daryl Issa, who offered an alternative to SOPA, which was called the Open Act. And the Open Act took a very different approach to how to deal with the problem of copyright. And to make a very long story short, it essentially said, let's deal with them the same way we deal with rogue sites, the same way we deal with international trade issues. Let's give it to the International Trade Commission, which is a body of the U.S. government, and let's deal with it that way. But more important than the substance was the fact that Chairman Issa, who is also the chairman and founder of the House Transparency Caucus, Congressional Transparency Caucus, set up that website, that keepthewebopen.com, and offered a really groundbreaking tool by which, somewhat akin to Wikipedia, experts or lay people, anybody out there, could comment on the specific provisions in a bill and annotate that and mark that up. And, and that, to me, represents a really fundamental shift in how government could work and a move towards open government that says, it's not enough just to have hearings and markups, although you have to have those as well. You should have these tools for collecting that dispersed knowledge and better informing the legislative process so that it is both more aware of unintended consequences and also less likely to fall prey to the general problem of regulatory capture by, as Julian was saying, incumbent industries and interests. So just as Julian was saying about ACTA, many people are now asking whether cybersecurity is the next SOPA or PIPA. And again, I think as with ACTA, we need to be careful to leaping to any uh, simplistic analogies. First of all, there is a very real problem in the cybersecurity context that I think is probably even greater than the problem in the copyright context. And that, that is not only that cybersecurity is a very real threat, but that we have an existing thicket of legislative mandates that prevent the sharing of information by private companies with each other and also with the government about cybersecurity threats. And that really does need to be fixed. These are laws that were set up with good intentions to protect our privacy, but they've had this unintended consequence of making it more difficult to detect and respond to cybersecurity problems. The problem is we now have two legislative vehicles in the House. We have the Cybersecurity Act of 2012 that was just introduced in the Senate by Senators Lieberman, Rockefeller, Collins, and Feinstein. And that bill has some fairly draconian provisions in it. And most of all, it fixes the problem I was just describing of clamping down on the sharing of cybersecurity threat information by saying, by going in a sense from zero to 100. So the current laws heavily restrict what you can share. This law would say the private sector is completely immune under all laws, all of those privacy laws, as well as contract law that an individual consumer might make with a company for any sharing of any information with any other company or the government, no matter how it's used. And that's a very scary provision that really essentially says we're going to throw all of the existing privacy laws out the window. So the key point to make there, there are a number of other problems with that bill. Key point is simply that bill is being introduced and reportedly is going to be moved to the floor without a single hearing or markup. And if that were to happen, that would be deeply disturbing to me and would very much resemble the same sort of failure of process that we saw on SOPA or PIPA. In both cases, people said, well, we've been talking about these problems for a long time, so it's okay to just introduce a legislative vehicle and, and rush it through. And, and I think that would be a mistake. And this kind of uh, handing of private information from corporations to the government is certainly not unprecedented. In fact, the government gave immunity to AT&T, I, I believe, for data that they handed to the National Security Agency? So yes, of course, all the major telecommunication companies got 
immunity from lawsuit for uh, information they shared with the government immediately after 9-11. But of course, they required immunity because the law generally prohibits the sharing of information about customer communications without a warrant or some kind of court order. And I think, you know, there's good reason for that. There are provisions for voluntary information sharing in emergency circumstances. But we understand that these are very heavily regulated industries that the government has very tight relationships with. And to say, well, you know, they're a private company and when they share with us voluntarily, that's up to them, even if it's in complete secrecy, that would strain, I think, intuitively our definition of voluntary. And so there's a regulatory setup there. But now, I think, as Barron suggests, that does create some difficulty because there are things like malware signatures, the sort of telltale fingerprints of viruses and Trojan horses and other kinds of nefarious software floating around, different kinds of patterns of attack that suggest that some kind of cyber attack is ongoing, that that is the kind of information that, you know, one, it is important to be able to share both among the private sector and with government, and also the kind of information that tends not to have huge privacy implications. Part of the problem there then is defining what can be shared and how in such a way that it permits the sharing of innocuous, you know, from the perspective of a law-abiding internet user information that is so important to defending against these cyber attacks. So it's a question of how to frame that in a sufficiently narrow way. But the other, I think, Hayekian point that is important to stress here is that the more complex the subject of regulation becomes, the more authority tends to get shifted from democratically accountable bodies to more insular, less accountable expert bodies or executive agencies. And we see that in another section of the cybersecurity bill that would allow, I think it's the director of national intelligence, to designate or at least develop standards for the designation of critical infrastructure and networks, computer networks operating in whatever is called critical infrastructure sectors would be subject to enhanced government oversight, to various kinds of performance standards and best practices and, you know, essentially a variety of other ways the government would be looking over their shoulder to ensure that they are keeping their networks secure enough so that some malicious power doesn't shut down our nuclear power plants. But the problem is defining all these is basically shunted to a different part of the process, to an executive agency, to something that's not in the bill, because it's not really within the competency of Congress, obviously, to specify in any detail which industries need this kind of oversight and what the best practices ought to be. But it also means that you have a situation where you know, people look at this and say, well, this obviously is going to affect the internet, is going to affect computer networks, is going to affect the privacy of our information. But it's written necessarily in a sufficiently general way that we are not going to be able to understand in advance what the concrete implications of that regulation is until it's too late. It's the old, we have to pass the bill to see what's in it. Let me just try to wrap this up by saying that to me, this all comes down to Hayek's concept of the rule of law, which is that we need laws that are predictable, that apply equally to all actors in all circumstances, and that any layperson can actually understand that the law needs to be accessible. 
So really, that's to say the law, both in its drafting process, should be informed and created in an open manner. And that when it is actually written, it needs to be something that um, we can understand, an entrepreneur who's trying to start a business can understand. That's sort of a Hayekian process and a Hayekian standard for writing laws is one that I think would actually allow the internet to thrive, allow entrepreneurs to continue to create businesses. And ensure, most of all, we haven't talked about this today, but ensure that, that internet governance remains something that is free and open and not something that, that is instead captured by an international bureaucracy like the uh, ITU, which is a threat that, that we risk falling into when we in the United States try to go it alone on regulating the internet, whether that's through SOPA or through reclassifying internet service providers in order to regulate them through net neutrality. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Baron Soka, president of Tech Freedom, uh, free market tech policy think tank, and Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can follow these issues in greater depth at our website, cato.org. Without question, the most profound domestic change in America over the past century has been the vast expansion of government under the progressive worldview. The signs are clear, however, that government is creaking under the enormous weight of this expansion. At a forum for his new book, Design for Liberty, Private Property, Public Administration, and the Rule of Law, Cato Institute adjunct scholar and New York University School of Law professor Richard Epstein discussed our overregulated state. One of the things that sort of happens to you as you start to get older is that you think of law or virtually any social system not only as a matter of deductive rules and necessary truths, but as a series of empirical regularities which need justification and argumentation, some of which comes from experience and sometimes comes from experience which is not easily quantifiable, so that it leaves you with the necessity in some way, shape, or form of being able to exercise judgment about hard cases in difficult types of circumstances. And what happens is you don't want to overlearn that particular lesson and assume that because you're going to have to have a system which embodies a certain degree of discretion, that necessarily all decisions turn out to be highly discretionary. So you're trying to basically put together a system which manages to combine the both of these particular ideals. And so when I wrote this book on Design to Liberty, the original title of it was Private Property and the Rule of Law, which I was going to talk about the arrangements between those two elements. And then the more I started to write this book, the more it became very clear to me that you had to insert this nasty little thing in the middle, that is the stuff about public administration, because of the simple but extremely important insight that institutions do not run by rules of loan, but they require all sorts of commitments to people and permanent types of arrangements, which are not so easily captured in either the first or the third of these two particular elements. There are, of course, great deals of uncertainty that are associated with the operation of any legal system. We may all agree, for example, that running a system that murder becomes an actionable event, theft and rape and all sorts of other crimes become actionable. But there is the uncertainty as to who committed it and how that particular person acted. And the only way in which you can figure out how to decide individual cases is to trust somebody, call them prosecutors, in order to decide whether or not the evidence associated with a particular case is strong enough to allow that particular case to be brought. 
And this is the kind of thing which you can try to cabin in by procedural rules dealing with due process and so forth, and indeed notice and hearing, which are the main principles of natural law as applied on the procedural side, in fact help to achieve that. But that doesn't solve the whole problem because these rules are only defensive once you get into court. It doesn't tell you who, which individuals ought to be charged and what levels of charge ought to be made against them. And anybody who's ever worked in this particular town understands that in many kinds of industries, the mere fact that you are subject to government prosecution is the most fatal payment that, you know, punishment that you could face precisely because you're dealing in a heavily regulatory environment where the mere fact of a lawsuit brought against you by a public official requires you to cease doing business, even if it turns out that you're innocent in the end, as was the case, for example, with respect to Arthur Anderson. And the reason, therefore, you talk about public administration is that you cannot require or rely on ex post intervention by courts to solve this problem. You have to develop something of a kind of a, an esprit de corps, a civic sense of responsibility, a series of internal management norms in order to handle these kinds of things. If you don't do this, the rest of the system will simply collapse because of the systematic violation of the rights that are done by public and private officials. So one of the things I think that people like myself, who are strongly libertarian, have to be enormously careful about is constantly bad-mouthing government officials as being inherently incapable and stupid and ignorant in everything that they do, thereby inducing the very behaviors that you would try to avoid and making it harder to enforce the rules in question. But on the other hand, if in fact you have this modest system of property rights, um, which defines the kind of offenses, the level of discretion that need be entrusted to these people will be smaller precisely because you have clear boundary lines as to what is or is not legal conduct, which means that the fact-finding task on which these things have to rest can be correspondingly controlled. And so, too, when you look at the public stuff, you cannot avoid the issue of discretion in the way in which that operates. I'm all in favor of a flat tax, but there are two very nettled problems that it doesn't solve. One, you have to figure out what the rate is going to be, and that means you have to put together budgets, and the budgets have to have a series of expenditures. One of the functions of the public use requirements in the takings clause is to sort of limit the kinds of things that government can do so as to limit the degree of discretion that you have, and the creation of non-excludable public goods is a very good way to start. And so in the Supreme Court, takes the position that anything which has a discernible public purpose turns out to be for public use, what you're doing is you're loosening the constraints on the expenditure side, which will now put enormous pressure on the revenue-raising side as well. And so you don't want to have that degree of discretion. It's just hard enough to run this system for admitted public goods, and then you have all the tasks when government does this as to whether you contract out to third parties, and if so, how you oversee their behavior, and so forth. And so, too, with respect to eminent domain, I wrote many books on this subject, and it's always negative after the fact. What you then have to do is to figure out what kind of public institutions you wanted to put into place so as to build the public park here as opposed to build it there. And you start to see cases where these things go very much awry precisely because the public use requirement is so weak in many cases that government officials overclaim the kind of land that they take over, displace people from their homes for no particular reason, and then turn it into a refuse dump at the next hurricane, which is exactly what happened in the Kilo case. Ms. Kilo's home now is a waste uh, in the grand city of New London, Connecticut, which is also pretty much bankrupt because of its own profligacy on other sorts. So the three pieces fit together necessarily. 
in the way in which you start to organize government. And the broad claim that I'm making is that a traditional administrative state, which is concentrating on relatively modest licensing requirements to see that people can drive cabs and so forth, will do far better than a modern administrative state where the discretion on how the money is raised, where the money is spent, the kinds of projects that you will raise is essentially unbounded. So if you're trying to put together the way in which this particular system has fallen, and this gets me not only to this book, but to the little broadside I wrote on progressive institutions, the great challenge, and I will end on this point, of American society is as follows. What we do is we manage to throttle private institutions of property and contract by a set of regulations that make it extremely difficult to develop. It turns out that we're very bad in assessing the way in which you deal with uncertainty in dealing with certain kinds of environmental projects where the tendency is to regulate too soon and too much instead of letting more information come out before you use the fatal form of injunctive relief. And then on the public side, since you're not creating public goods only through taxation but huge transfer systems, we have additional losses that take place. So essentially the way in which the system works when the rule of law, private property and public information and administration are not in sync is as follows. We destroy production at the bottom. And then, in effect, we have a transfer system on the top, which cannot be sustained by the resources that we have available. So what we then do is we decide, in effect, to increase the level of taxation or regulation because we don't like what we see in order to increase the level of entitlement spending, and the cycle continues. And unless and until you break it at both the macro government level and the private level, you will always fail in trying to constrain the government. It's hard to know exactly what we're getting out of higher education. Productivity, let alone productivity growth in higher ed, is simply very difficult to measure. Richard Vetter is an economist at Ohio University and is author of Going Broke by Degree, Why College Costs Too Much. He spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on higher ed in November. Sometimes I get a few laughs from audiences when I claim that with the possible exception of prostitution, teaching is the only profession that has had absolutely no productivity advance in the 2400 years since Socrates taught the youth of Athens. While Socrates did not use PowerPoint or even have a blackboard, in essence his approach to spreading knowledge and wisdom is pretty similar to what goes on most of the time in American colleges and universities. And frankly, I think most of the teaching today is probably not as insightful as Socrates was. So, but in measuring productivity in higher education, it's an extremely difficult thing for three reasons. First, modern universities don't simply teach. They do a variety of other things. We can talk about the productivity of faculty, but what about the productivity of the vast bureaucracy that's roughly equal to the faculty in size, the so-called support staff? How do we measure the productivity of research? And don't forget, most universities are also in the food and lodging and entertainment businesses. Some run hospitals and clinics that in some cases consume as many resources as the rest of the university combined. Adding together the productivity of, say, university food service workers with that of faculty members may be a little bit like adding together apples and oranges. There's a second problem I think that is huge, measuring outcomes or output in higher ed. Presumably professors are in the business of creating and imparting knowledge and insights, critical thinking and writing skills, maybe even 
promoting civil conduct and maturity and compassion. How do you measure these things? Maybe even one could argue the ultimate bottom line of higher education is the productivity of the college graduates in the labor force, perhaps, years later. But do we have professor by professor or even college by college really good information on what our graduates are doing or how much they're making? The answer in general is no. We are generally relatively clueless as to whether our seniors know more than our freshmen, whether the value added to knowledge and wisdom in the fourth year of instruction is as great as it was in the first and second year, and so forth. A third problem arises, I think, because higher education is not sold in a free, unfettered marketplace where prices accurately reflect the interaction between consumer desires as well as the resources used by producers to offer their services. Third parties, most importantly governments, but also to some extent private philanthropic interests, subsidize higher education, and this leads in some cases to distorted prices for educational services that do not solely reflect the human actions of buyers and sellers in the marketplace. Now, in spite of all these problems, we can try to roughly guess what has happened to higher education productivity over the years, making various seemingly plausible assumptions. With in my judgment, with nearly any reasonable scenario, it is difficult to see strong advances in productivity at a time when productivity outside of higher education is rising. The government data suggests that since 1970, the average American worker's output has risen, uh, inflation adjusted by 126 percent compared with his or her counterpart in 1970, oh, in the 40 years since then, uh, that's a compounded annual growth rate of 2.06%. If you make the heroic assumption that higher ed productivity has risen 1% a year, the gap between the two has risen. So if, the two, if you had two workers who were comparable in productivity in 1970 and somehow they were still mysteriously both working in 2010, the one in 2010 would be with a 1% growth in productivity only two-thirds as productive as the uh, non-higher ed worker. And if, if productivity had risen not at all in higher ed, productivity of the private sector worker would be more than double that of the higher ed worker. So the gaps are growing. But the wages in higher ed of faculty and non-faculty alike have risen roughly comparable to that of the rest of the economy. And therefore, we have a huge increase in labor costs in colleges and universities arising from the relative stagnation in productivity. And it's these rising costs that have contributed to the sharp increase in the cost of higher education over time. Now, as mentioned earlier, faculty members are only part of the productivity problem. In a strange middle-of-the-night press release last Sunday, the University of Texas presented a study in which it bragged that UT Austin faculty brought in over $2 in state appropriation subsidies and research grant money for every $1 earned in salaries and benefits by the faculty. And that doesn't even include the university funds received from other sources, such as gifts and endowments. Indeed, faculty members at Texas and elsewhere constitute no more than a third of total university outlays, typically. 
even after excluding the auxiliary enterprises like housing and athletic operations. So we need to look also at the huge explosion in support staff. The category of non-instructional professional workers is growing by leaps and bounds in universities, and if you view them as part of the instructional mission, then it would take huge increases in output per faculty member for any productivity to take place in all of higher education since 1970. But let's get back to the topic of the faculty. Are professors teaching more uh, students today than in 1970? On average, no. Are the students learning more? Who knows? But the limited evidence that I've seen makes me highly skeptical that they are. We know, for example, on average, that students spend less time in academic pursuit, probably 25 to 30 percent less on average than in 1970. We know that some evidence suggests that typically contemporary college seniors have accumulated little in the way of critical thinking or writing skills during their college years. Are faculty members doing more research? Probably yes, measured by academic paper production or other indicators. But since much contemporary research seems to be of, have a very limited audience, and arguably deals with matters of trivia, it's highly doubtful that there's been major advances in true research productivity over time. And for speaking personally, as one who was teaching both in 1970 and 2010, in fact, I have final exams to go back to read after I get done here, I personally doubt very much whether faculty productivity in its totality has changed much at all, and certainly not more than, a, say, a fraction of 1% a year. Sovereign debt is treated differently when it comes to bank regulation, but there's often no good reason to treat that debt as safer than other debts. And regulators have clearly failed in Europe to keep bad Greek debt out of European banks. Cato Institute adjunct scholar John Cochran, a professor of finance at the University of Chicago, spoke about some of the problems facing Europe and the U.S. at a Cato Institute City Seminar in November. I want to take you on a little tour of sort of the events of the moment and then think a little more broadly about where do we stand with, uh, with our various financial crises. Right now, of course, we're all thinking about Europe. And uh, Europe has apparently managed to turn what should be a simple sovereign debt restructuring into a bank crisis, a currency crisis, and a political crisis. This is an entirely self-inflicted tragedy, and it comes from a stew of bad ideas. What are the bad ideas? Bad idea number one, a currency union can't survive a sovereign default. Everybody just takes this for granted, especially in Europe. If Greece defaults, that means the breakup of the euro. Germany has to get serious, or else the euro certainly will fall apart. This isn't just Le Monde and La Repubblica. It's The Economist. It's the Financial Times, all too often even in the Wall Street Journal. And it's utter nonsense. A currency union is stronger if you can have sovereign defaults than it is if the central bank has to bail everybody out all the time. The U.S. states defaulted in the 1800s. That didn't imperil the dollar as a currency. That made the dollar as a currency union stronger. Greece, may surprise those in Europe to know, has defaulted many times before. Defaulted on the pound. 
that made the pound stronger rather than weaker, that Greece defaulted rather than was bailed out. Sovereign default, Europeans treat sovereign defaults like some new crazy thing. It's been going on at least since Edward III defaulted on the Peruzzi Bank in 1343. None of these sovereign defaults imperiled the gold standard, which was that or the use of gold as common currency. It makes no sense at all. Now, maybe it's not that it must fall apart, but it will choose to fall apart, that Greece will choose to leave the euro, but that would be absolutely nuts from Greece's point of view. If it, it's still in default, if it leaves the eurozone, it will still be unable to borrow. It'll be an isolated little country with capital controls, inflation, expropriation of savings. The idea that depreciation makes you competitive ends in Zimbabwe. If it worked, Zimbabwe would be the richest country on earth. No, a currency union can exist, and in Europe probably should exist, without political union, without fiscal union, and it works great that way. The key is that sovereigns have to then default, just like companies default. Bad idea number two, a highly regulated banking system is going to prevent all this excess risk-taking and these crises. I guess no one in this room has that bad idea, but everyone in Europe seems to think it works, and most people in the U.S., like our friend Mr. Frank. The key to Europe right now is that the, why are they so afraid of default? Well, the European politicians know who's holding the bonds. It's their own banks. Where were the regulators who let all this happen? Sovereign debt is treated in European banking regulation as risk-free. Banks are not required to hold any capital. They can hold it on the books at face value, no matter what uh, it's trading for on the market. The stress tests don't even think about sovereign default. Banks aren't even told to buy credit default swaps, insurance against defaults. Countries now are pushing in the opposite direction. If you're an Italian bank, my friends tell me, and you don't show up at the treasury auctions to buy more government debt, you get a little call late in the night saying, hey, Luigi, what's the matter? Didn't see you at the treasury auction. Should we send some uh, investigators down to see what's wrong with your books? It is conventional to close the barn door after the horse has left. Europe has opened the barn door wide. Now why? The regulators aren't stupid. They know that, that sovereign debt is dangerous, but their job is to prop up debt to manage the crisis. So we have in front of us the great first experiment of the proposition that regulators can stop banks from taking too much risk. The risk is perfectly obvious sovereign risk that's been going on for centuries, and it has failed miserably. Under Dodd-Frank, that is the uh, great idea of the US, that regulators will stop banks from ever losing money again. Good luck. Another bad idea, Greece is like Lehman Brothers. We can't let it go down. This is French President Nicolas Sarkozy. He said, Greece is like Lehman Brothers. If it goes down, we'll have a big crisis on our hand. No, Mr. Sarkozy, it is not. Now, we can argue about whether letting Lehman Brothers fail was or wasn't the first sin of, of our crisis. I think not. Some people do. But however you feel about that, Greece is not Lehman Brothers. It does not have a trillion dollars of offsetting derivative contracts that will be frozen in London bankruptcy court. It isn't a broker-dealer whose hedge fund clients will immediately leave if they see something happen. It doesn't have, uh, all its clients don't have collateral that will stuck in UK, be stuck in UK bankruptcy courts. If the financial system is threatened by Greece failing, it's not because Greece is an investment bank, it's because you, it's European politicians, let your banks load up on Greek debt. More, bad idea number four, banks may not fail. Banks always must be recapitalized, and somehow at taxpayer expense, or they won't lend. We have to keep propping them up uh, forever and ever. No, sorry. We have to remember 
that failure and bankruptcy doesn't leave a big crater behind where once there was a bank. If a bank fails, it files for bankruptcy, its shareholders lose money, its bondholders lose money, but the loan-making operations get sold off to some new owner, a new sign goes up in front, and they can be back in business the next day making loans again. The easiest way to recapitalize a bank is precisely to send it through bankruptcy and sell off the loan-making operations to new capital. Somehow nobody understands this, but it works. <laughs> Bad idea number five, one of the worst ones, contagion. What is this contagion anyway? Greece doesn't owe Italy any money. They seem to think that the point of government is to act as the psychologist-in-chief, to calm markets, to give confidence. You read this all the time. Europe has to do something really big so markets will get confidence again. We wave big bags of money in front of the markets and that will calm them down, poor little souls. And of course, we won't have to spend the money because they'll be calm. I don't have to tell you how bad this idea is. Worst idea of all, it is the job of their central bank, the European Central Bank, to provide liquidity. And stock markets are up today on the news that all sorts of central banks are in to provide liquidity and help out this business. No, and alas, that leaves Europe in its current quandary. The sovereign debt is stuffed in the European banks. There's now a run on the European banks, as most people depositing money in those banks understand that they're depositing money in something that's no good, so they're pulling it out. The European Central Bank is not only buying up the sovereign debt, it's lending money to the entire European banking system. On what collateral? On sovereign debt as the collateral. So even though it, it says it's not exposed there, we all know it owns the banks which own the sovereign debt. When the inevitable uh, default happens, the euro bonds will have already been issued. They're called euros. And Europe will be faced with a horrible decision either to come up with trillions of euros of tax money to bail out the central bank or to let the euro inflate and that really will be the end of the euro. A sad situation, mostly brought on by bad ideas, not by anything particularly unsolvable. The State of the Union address is typically little more than a self-congratulatory laundry list of new government programs and other assorted government meddling. Cato Institute senior fellow Michael Tanner takes a different view. He argues that the United States is headed down the road to fiscal collapse without serious and quick reforms. At a January Capitol Hill briefing, Tanner made his case before the State of the Union. If I could sum up my view of the State of the Union in two simple words, it would be, we're broke. The fact is that, once again, this year, we will spend more money than we have, borrowing about 40 cents out of every dollar that we spend. We have just passed the $15 trillion mark in terms of on-the-books debt. But that debt only takes into account a small portion of the actual indebtedness that this country faces. If you want to look at the way debt is calculated, there are actually three types of debt that this country faces. The first and most widely considered is debt held by the public. This is debt that the government owes people and institutions in this country or other countries. It's the bonds, essentially, that the government owes and 
people have them in their portfolios and China holds them and Japan holds them. And uh, this is sort of the on the books most real debt, if you will, is probably about uh, $11 trillion roughly at this point. There's a second type of debt that goes into the public debt, and this is called intergovernmental debt. This is debt, in essence, that the government owes itself or owes to its various trust funds and entities. There's over 100 of these trust funds and revolving accounts and so on. The two largest that are most commonly talked about are Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund. There's also the Highway Trust Fund. There's a special trust fund for the uh, Gulf oil spill, and there's all, all sorts of these things. And there's another $4 trillion or so that the government owes these various trust funds. Now, that is in some ways a little softer than debt held by the public, but ultimately it has to be repaid, and therefore it's a very real debt that the government will ultimately have to come up with money with which to pay. And you add those that $4 trillion to the $11 trillion in uh, debt held by the public, and you get about $15 trillion. But there's a third type of debt as well, and this is the sort of implicit debt or unfunded obligations that the government owes to programs such as Medicare and Social Security going forward. We are able to look at these programs, and we know roughly what they are going to have to spend in the future under current law, that assuming that we pay the benefits just as we're promised to do under current law, we know how much those will cost. And we're able to project going forward how much revenue uh, is expected to come in from the taxes that theoretically support these programs, the payroll tax and so forth. So we are able, therefore, to make a projection of the shortfall between what we projected in terms of spending and what we expect to take in in terms of revenue. And the shortfall on these programs adds up to somewhere in the area of, oh, 100 to $105 trillion. That is trillion with a T, meaning that our total unfunded obligations is somewhere in excess of $120 trillion. If you went out and confiscated every penny owned by every millionaire and billionaire, you would not make a dent in what this country owes. Leading aside the fact that you couldn't do it a second time and the fact that you would have a slight impact on our economy if you did that, you wouldn't make a dent in the debt. So something like the Buffett rule, which is supposed to get you $16 billion over the next 10 years, is not going to solve our debt problem. Simply put, state of the union is we're broke and we can't tax our way out of it. Franklin Roosevelt's views on the role of government animated his approach to war. Those efforts resulted in self-serving policies that aggrandized his office at the expense of civil society. Bert Folsom is co-author of the new book, FDR Goes to War. He discussed FDR's actions as a war president at a Cato Book Forum in January. You know, we look at World War II and Franklin Roosevelt, it seems so long ago, it's 70 years since the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And you don't really realize that much of American politics, from foreign policy to domestic policy, is shaped by the events that happened in World War II. Franklin Roosevelt was very anxious 
for an active role of government in the American economy. Of course, World War II provides that in a big way. Anita's gone into some of those details. But Roosevelt wanted it that way after the war, too. That's the important thing. So you have, during the war, Franklin Roosevelt created the National Resources Planning Board. They were supposed to take ideas for after the war to run the American economy. Roosevelt picked this up, and in his State of the Union speech in 1944, he talked about the Economic Bill of Rights. The Economic Bill of Rights, and I quote from parts of it, include the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to a good education, the right to adequate medical care. These become new rights, which Roosevelt described as the new economic bill of rights. Sometimes he called it the second bill of rights. And they roll off the tongue so nicely, don't they? A right to a decent home. Don't we all want decent homes? The right to a good education. The right to a useful and remunerative job. Roosevelt issued these, and these become the plan for after World War II. When the war is over, then these rights can be given forth. Now, if you think about it, if Anita has a right to a useful and remunerative job, then someone here has an obligation to provide that job. If I have a right to a decent home, taxpayers have an obligation to provide that home. If David has a right to adequate medical care, then there are hospitals, or through federal funding of some kind, those hospitals, those physicians are obligated to supply that medical care. How different this is from the first Bill of Rights. The right to free speech does not impose obligations on you to even listen to the speech, least of all accept it or pay for it. The right to freedom of religion, we're in a church here, the right of freedom of religion does not obligate anyone to go to a certain church. It just provides the opportunity for someone to practice freedom of religion. The first Bill of Rights by the Founders our rights. The second Bill of Rights impose obligations and involve the government in a big way. Now, what we see in the war is a huge tax structure being set up, which Roosevelt will want to use after the war and will be used after the war to fund more federal programs. In 1932, the year that Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, the income tax maximum that anybody had to pay was 25%. That's the most anybody had to pay. Top incomes. Most Americans did not pay income tax at all. Of course, in some ways, there's a problem with that. But we only had about 5% of Americans paying any income tax as late as uh, right before the war in 1940. By the end of the war, two-thirds of American families were paying the federal income tax. And it started at 24%. The exemption was only $500. If you made over $500, you started paying at 24%. That then increased in a progressive way up to a maximum of 94% on all income over $200,000.
That means that if you earn $300,000 on your third $100,000, you keep $6,000, you give to the government $94,000. A lot of people thought, hey, that might stifle entrepreneurship. Roosevelt believed it's essential providing decent homes, good educations, adequate medical care. This will be the basis of the funding of those kinds of actions. So what we see is a dramatic increase in the taxpayer base and in tax revenue. We see withholding introduced for the first time. Withholding, we have a chapter on that that will be introduced that will take money directly out of paycheck so the government can use it right away rather than having to wait for a year. What we see is a defense of Franklin Roosevelt by many people. I'd like to read from a Kentucky senator, Senator Happy Chandler. Democratic senator from Kentucky, the state where David was born, where Anita was born. But neither of them agrees with Happy Chandler, at least on this point. He said this, quote, All of us owe the government. We owe it for everything we have. And that is the basis of obligation. And the government can take everything we have if it needs it. The government can assert its right to have all the taxes it needs for any purpose, either now or at any time in the future. The Chandler view expressed on the Senate floor, we pulled this out of the congressional record, and many other quotations like this, are the defense of the idea of government becoming the main source not only of for the economy, for providing jobs, for providing health care, and the tax revenue then going into the government so that the government programs can provide those kinds of jobs, can provide decent homes, can provide good educations. When we got to the end of the war, Roosevelt died, Harry Truman comes in. Harry Truman essentially agrees with Roosevelt on many of these issues. They're different kinds of people, two very different presidents. But on these issues, Truman is ready to go along with a lot of this. Truman comes in. The economic planners are wanting to institute this, but they think the war is going to go on until 1946. Germany, of course, surrenders in 45. It appears that it will go on for a long time. Truman did not know about the atomic bomb when he became president. That's one of the shocks. Roosevelt had never informed him that it was being developed. In fact, one of the odd things is, the day that Truman became president, he did not know we had an atomic bomb. But Stalin did. One of the ironies of history, the Russians knew we had it. The president of the United States did not. Happily, Secretary of War Stimson told that to Truman early in his presidency, so now he knew. And when he made the decision to use it on Japan in August, Congress is out of session. It takes most of America by surprise. August 6th, an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. August 9th, on Nagasaki. Congress is out of session, and the war is over. The planners had not had a chance to come in with their programs. Immediately, Truman wants to get them back into session. But by this time, some of the congressmen were saying, you know what, this 94% tax I don't think is going to get America back on track. The Keynesians completely believed it. Listen, here's, here's Truman's Secretary of Treasury. It gives you an idea where the Americans were who favored this kind of intervention. Of course, 
Lord Maynard Keynes had come out with his ideas that you need public works, stimulate aggregate demand, lots of government intervention, and you will eliminate unemployment through that. And so what Secretary of Treasury Vincent, another Kentuckian, by the way, Fred Vincent, Truman's Secretary of Treasury, says, quote, he says it's right after the war, the Japanese have surrendered, and he wants massive government intervention, and he says, history shows us that business, labor, agriculture cannot in themselves assure the maintenance of high levels of production and employment. In other words, markets don't work. The government must assume responsibility and take measures broad enough to meet the issues. Reporter I.F. Stone completely agrees, as do many other reporters. Stone says, quote, new agencies, new men, new ideas, new directions are necessary and quickly if we are not to suffer a relapse into chronic mass unemployment. That the war's transfusions are no longer available to an alien capitalism. This alien capitalism no longer has the war's transfusion. 12 million soldiers are coming home. Immediately, we've got to have these government programs for them. They predicted without massive government programs, new WPAs, new programs to build roads, new programs to train people, Without these programs, in effect, Truman wanted to build new, like the Tennessee Valley Authority for the Tennessee Valley, others all around the country, other types of public works programs, other types of use of dams, building of public works, very much in Truman's mind. Unless these things happen, they predicted, listen, we've got 12 million veterans coming home. Senator Kilgore of West Virginia said, I predict 18 million unemployed. It's going to be worse than the Great Depression. It's going to be worse than the 25% we had when Roosevelt came into office. Time Magazine, others estimated, no, maybe just 10 or 12 million unemployed. That still is going to put it at about 20%. Predictions of very high unemployment. What do we get? Two senators, one Republican, one Democrat, say no. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Walter George of Georgia, said this. He supported a Revenue Act of 1945, which cut tax rates. I'll get into that in a minute. But he said this. If this Revenue Act has the effect which it is hoped it will have, it will so stimulate the expansion of business as to bring in a greater total revenue and create more jobs at the same time. In other words, I think we can get more revenue into the government. And I think we can get more jobs created if we cut the tax rates and allow businesses to expand. It was a model completely different from the Roosevelt model in the Economic Bill of Rights. And we had the Republicans agreeing. Senator Albert Hawks, Republican of New Jersey, said this. The repeal of the excess profits tax, in my opinion, may raise more revenue for the United States than would be raised if it were retained. And it was at 90%. We had a 90% corporate tax. And Hawks is saying, if you'll cut that tax below 90%, I think we can actually not only create more jobs because you stimulate business, but you will actually grow the economy and get more revenue at the same time. And Hawks added this statement, Senator Hawks, you cannot get a golden egg out of a dead goose. Hawks led enough Republicans and Senator George led enough Democrats to pass the Revenue Act of 1945. And the Revenue Act of 1945 cut the corporate tax from 90% to 38%. Imagine that. 90% to 38%. It cut the personal income tax. Plus, it promised more cuts later. So this is the first one. This is all we can get through now. More are coming later. 
We cut what was known as the capital stock tax. You had to pay a tax on every share of stock you owned. We eliminated that. Eliminated regulation, slashed federal spending dramatically, which of course you can do. We no longer were going to need the tanks, planes, and ammunition. So enormous cutting of federal expense. The end result of this was a massive economic expansion. Businessmen said, finally, we've been under these heavy taxes for 13 years and even more into the Hoover administration was not too good either. We've had a Great Depression for 15 years. Now the tax rates are cut. It's time to expand. If you look at that post-war economy, so much that we take for granted today. I mean, you got fast food, you know, McDonald's uh, gets going. You get the, the uh, Holiday Inn. Uh, you get television, Xerox, copy machines, all of these kinds of entrepreneurs and many more come to the fore after World War II. And we see a tremendous growth. One of the most exciting statistics here is this. We had 39 million people employed in civilian employment, non-military. That goes up to 55 million. The stock market increased by 20% in 1946. Private gross national product increased 30% for the first and only time it had done that in U.S. history. And furthermore, the experts were estimating, well, I think we will get $31 million into the federal treasury in 46, maybe 47. We got 43, excuse me, 31 billion. We had 43 billion. We increased that by more than 25% because the economy had expanded so much more than anybody anticipated. The end result is that we have 3.9% unemployment in 1946, 3.9% unemployment in 1947. The United States has this burgeoning growth rate. And when Europe, who is trying the other means, the Keynesian means to get back on their feet, when they're failing, the United States is able to send tons and tons of food over to feed Europeans who at different points in the post-war period were dying at the rate of one per second. Those deaths were curtailed by free food that the United States sent over after the war. We sent that food, the economy recovered, and we cut the federal deficit during 1946 and 1947. Slightly, but we did cut it, in part because the revenue so much exceeded expectations. So what I'm saying is this. We have a lot during World War II that gives us lessons for today, what works, what doesn't work in an expanding economy, the taxes that we've come to expect today, the economic bill of rights, the right to education, which we've seen, for example, with the student loan program and Obama, President Obama. We've seen changes with the housing right to a decent home, which goes with urban renewal first. Then you go to the Community Reinvestment Act in the 1970s, which promises very low interest rates to poor people so that they can have homes, which accelerates the mortgage crisis, which becomes unhinged in the last in five years. The right to medical care we see with President Obama and Obamacare. So I'm simply saying this. The politics of today, heavily shaped by what we saw happen in World War II. But what we saw happen in World War II, if we study it more carefully, is that we got out of the Great Depression by freeing up the economy and cutting tax rates, not by following the prescription to increase and perpetuate the high economic growth 
that we experienced during World War II. The Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty is awarded every two years to an individual who has made a significant contribution to advancing human freedom. The cash award of $250,000 will be presented at the Biennial Dinner on May 4, 2012 in Washington, D.C. For more information on the dinner and to purchase tickets, visit cato.org slash Friedman. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.